I'm Jason Comstock, and welcome to We Happy Few, the podcast that allows veterans and their families to tell their stories, stories that will cover a broad spectrum of lived experiences, from time and service to the return home and beyond. Experiences shared with the hope that all listeners will better understand the sometimes complicated lives of veterans and their families. Thank you for listening to We Happy Few. In this episode of We Happy Few, Krista Palmer discusses with Tom Luma how her dream of helping people led her to serve in the U.S. Air Force. A word of warning, this episode contains a description and a discussion of sexual assault. So I joined in May 2010. Um, I was 23 years old at the time, so I was a little older in my life. Um, I joined for a couple reasons. You know, financial stability. When you're at that age and I couldn't get, you know, money for college, I was working a full-time job. It just didn't seem like it was going anywhere. Um, That was one of the reasons. But also the other reasons is I always wanted to be in the military, which is interesting because I have... I have nobody in my family line that was in the military. Um, my little brother is in the Marines now, but that was after I had, had joined. So I also wanted to become a police officer. So at that time, I had been mentoring with one of the police officers um, in Orem. And she was a female sheriff, and I had been going on ride-alongs and things like that. I've just always kind of had this, I would say, like, hero complex. Like, I just wanted to be, like, a superhero, like a modern-day superhero. I just wanted to help people. So I was like, hey, why not do both? Join the military and be a cop. Um, And also, you know, the recruiters make it sound like amazing. You know, oh, you're going to be driving in Humvees and shooting stuff. And so it just gets you really pumped. But uh, but that's the main reason is just financial stability. And I just wanted to do something bigger and better than myself. I wanted to see. And I remember at the time, everybody was giving me such crap because they're like oh you don't like change you can't deal with change especially my dad he's like anytime change happens and I'm like oh you want to see change boom sign a six-year contract (laughs) no no going back now right (laughs) but yeah I just wanted to help people honestly and I thought it would be a cool experience uh to just set up for the I was going in to do a full 20 years that was my main goal I was going to have a military life so I joined, um, I got stationed at Barksdale, uh, which is in Shreveport, Louisiana, home of the B-52 bombers. So security forces is what my MOS was, and I actually didn't want any other MOS. I was offered a couple of different ones, but I'm like, no, I want to be a cop. I, I, and I want to, I just want to do the cool stuff. I want to have the guns. I want to have the, you know, the hardships, I guess, at that time. Now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, oh, man, I should have just been a cook. <laughs> but it's okay, though. It was supposed to happen that way. You told me when we were talking before this yeah. that you were a high-speed airman. A high-speed airman, yes. Uh, I, I guess high-speed airman, I just wanted to do everything. Like, any opportunity that came up, I volunteered for it. I was just – I was excited. I was ready for these opportunities. I was just ready to take on everything and anything. That's kind of what I was. Any opportunity that came along, I was like, let's do it. Let's go. And that was very, I was very high speed throughout my career, just doing extra work because I just saw other airmen sit there and just 
oh, this is my job. And I'm like, no, this is, this is crazy. All the amount of opportunities given to us, why not take them? Why not do extra? That was, yeah, uh, I did, like I said earlier, I told you, I just wasn't a cop. I was deployed uh, my first year in. I was part of a 44-man team for the B-52 bombers. We were attached to them. So basically if they needed, if they the president armed them up, we would follow uh, wherever the B-52 landed and then provide per- protection for them. I also was in the base honor guard, which was probably the most honorable thing I've ever done out of anything that I can think of. Funeral services and handing handing a flag to someone that lost a loved one is just, it's the most overwhelming experience that you could ever have. Um, so I'm grateful for that opportunity. Then I worked confinement for two years, which was crazy because I'm just such a nice person. So I had to change, I had to change my, my perspective and how I went about things. I was actually the meanest confinement officer because I wouldn't let anyone get away with anything. So, but it was fun. I really liked that job. And then I did training my last year. So I did a bunch of different things. And then there's, there's just other airmen that just wanted to do one thing their whole career. And I'm like, I just found that boring. So when you, when you were doing confinement, yeah, you said that you had to kind of become an alter ego and, and get you yes. know, a little bit rough or tough. Yeah. What, what made you think at some point during your career that you actually had to do this? So it definitely started on my deployment. I deployed to Saudi Arabia a year in my first year in, I was one female out of, I think, it was a team of 13 that they sent from each base. There was other females, obviously, when I got there. But from my own base, I was the only female. When I got there, I really didn't expect... Because you see it in movies and things like that. I didn't expect to get harassed so much. Um, a lot of guys, and even the girls, I'm I'm not going to just pin it on you know one gender, but... They like to be promiscuous over there for some reason, and I'm just not that type of person. And so I remember, actually, I have a, something specific. It was, like, the one thing that that kind of sparked, like, oh, I need to do something about this. And it was one night when I worked uh, one of the towers, and you're in that tower for about 18 hours with another person, uh, give or take. And it's 95% of the time, it's a male. Because obviously the males out, you know, out ratioed the females on there. But they would call me wifey. They would, you know, oh, you're really hot. Like, just say really weird things that just made me feel uncomfortable. And then one night, oh, this is crazy because I've actually never talked about this. One night I was in my chair on the other side. Like, obviously it was a really small square room. And I was just sitting in my chair. And I think, like, I started, like, singing or something. And... The male that I had been, I had been uh, with that night, he came over and he actually started to unbutton my pants and just try to like there was no come on nothing. It was just automatic like I'm going to f- you in this tower. Nothing, not my permission, anything. I was so scared. I actually ended up kicking him into a grate and. Something came out of me where I was like, I threatened him. I said, don't ever touch me ever again or I will kill you. Did I mean that I was going to kill him? Probably not. But I had to. I had to say that. I had to put my hand on my gun and I had to say that. So it's crazy because people people don't, 
uh, I just felt so lonely there because I went to my commanders and nobody believed me. They were either like, hey, put, and they were male commanders, might I add. Um, oh, you know, they're just joking. Uh, grow thick skin. Um, you know, oh, you're probably just taking it out of context. Nobody believed me. It was crazy. I even called back at my home base. Like, it just, nobody was listening to me. And they're like, oh, that's deployment. Who in their right minds think that's, that's okay? Oh, it's just deployment. Like, we're supposed to expect that. I didn't sign to get sexually harassed every day for six months while I'm halfway across the world. I'm there to do a job. I'm there to protect that base and secure it. I'm not there to get harassed. So um, I remember making a phone call to my sister and my dad saying, hey, man, this is what's happening. What should I do? And my dad's like, and hopefully no one gets offended at language. Uh, <laughs> he said, you have to become a b-. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, you've got to become a jerk so much that they don't screw with you anymore. And so I remember that. I'm like, dad, I'm not a jerk, though. And he's like, he's like, I know, but you've got to become one to, to save yourself. And so I remember, you know, just trolling the guys back. Whenever they said something to me, I would say something back. Didn't mean it was right. No, because I had to become a jerk. But eventually, after a couple months and me saying no and just like, hey, knock that off. I'm not okay with that. After a couple months, the guys finally, like, I got my respect and they left me alone. But it sucks that I had to turn into that in order to protect myself. Did anything ever come of this? No, nobody listened to me. I reported. I never heard anything back. Nothing. Nothing was handled. So that's why I was like, that's why that one night I just kind of took it in my own hands and threatened to kill him if he... And I know that sounds scary, and but when you're put in that situation, you're just like, what do I do? You kind of have to just become this jerk. And I remember, it's really funny, uh, I remember this one instant in training. It was in combat training when we were in combat training course after basic training, the security forces section. We were at an army camp prepping, and I remember we had our packs on. We were all, you know, packed out. We had our guns. We were like, I had this female staff sergeant that was just making us run miles and miles in the Texas heat. And we were just dead. And the girls, obviously, were not as strong as the guys, so we would fall behind. So I remember she was yelling at us, and she's like, hey, get over here right now. And so there's about four of us. And at that time, I was dealing with a sinus infection, so I was like, man, it was even harder to breathe. And she's like, what's everyone's excuses right now? Like, why are you so behind the guys? And I'm like... And she's like, Palmer, I already know you have a sinus infection, but she's asking the other girls. And then she gives this speech, and she's like, look, I'm going to tell you right now, and you're not going to understand it until a pivotal point in your career is that you're either going to be a or a And I was like, what? It's <laughs> like, that's the strangest advice ever because I'm not a and I'm definitely not a I'm not like that. And she's like, and I never understood it. And then I understood it in that moment. I had to become a to save my life. And I've had to do it other times in my career. And it was really hard on my psyche because I'm not naturally like that. I'm just a sweet, you know, empathetic person. And so it really took a toll on me, like, having to do that sometimes. I 
think this is a great time to take a break and hear from the businesses that are making this podcast possible. If you support us and what we are doing, please support them. Hi, I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Jason Lee. Listen to our free podcast, Voices of Reason, unless you enjoy screaming matches. Nope, you're not going to hear that with us. You'll hear folks who may disagree, but seek to understand different views. That's Voices of Reason on the KSL Radio app or wherever you find interesting podcasts. Did that type of uh, behavior and what you needed to become, which was unnatural for you, mm-hmm. have an impact on your uh, deciding to not stay in the Air Force for 20 years? That was definitely one of them. I think the other deciding factor is my mental health took a huge dive. Probably, probably my oh, I had probably two years left in, and it was my last year working in confinement. And I remember just sitting there, just feeling overwhelmed. And my social group at that time, um, my other friends that were in security forces and things like that, me, had been declining. I had been irrationalizing things. I had been catastrophizing things. I had any, I couldn't handle anything. If my car, you know, I mean, like if my car couldn't start in the morning, I just like, it was the end of the world for me. Something had switched in my brain and I didn't know quite what it was and it was actually really scary for me. So I started seeking help, you know, going to the the on-base doctors and things like that. At that same time, my back was declining. I actually hurt my back on my first deployment and then I reported it. And obviously, I'm sure you know, they're like, oh, here's some Motrin and water. And that, that was it for a long time. But I remember um, my back health started hurting um, along with my mental health. It happened at the same time. I had been taking care of that and trying to get help for my back. Nobody was listening. You know, I was getting injections and things like that. I'm like, no, something's really wrong. Like, it really hurts. And then as well as my mental health. So I was dealing with those two issues at the same time. Yeah, something had just switched in my last two years in. It was just, um, it just didn't feel right. And then that's when um, I went in, I got diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder which is, for those who don't know that, it's an anxiety disorder, but you hyper-focus on things and you catastrophize everything. So it's very paranoia, things like that, just making really, really big, um, what is it called? Like mountains out of molehills, right. per se. Um, so And it started to affect my life. Um, it started to affect my friendships, um, my work. I couldn't sleep. I would have nightmares. It started physically affecting me, too. Um, I was diagnosed with that. Then they had me, you know, trying all sorts of stuff for that. My back was still doing horrible. My friendships were just plummeting. I My support system just totally failed underneath me because I was acting crazy. I was not acting like myself. And that's when the suicidal thoughts started. Tell me a little bit about what... I think you kind of just mentioned it here. Yeah. What What was the tipping point that got you to the point of, I can't take it anymore? I was at a point where I hated myself. I didn't get it. I was working so hard. I was in charge of the Airmen Against Strength Driving program. I was just doing all these extras. 
At that time, I was up for Airman of the Year. I didn't get it because, sadly, the person that got it was sleeping with the the person that was judging. So that was another thing that I came across in the military was that females did use that. And I wasn't like that. And so I lost a lot of, you know, recognition in things that I work in because I didn't I wasn't like that. Just hated myself. I hated the way I felt. I hated the way I was reacting to things. I had felt like nobody was listening to me. I was screaming for help. And it's just like it's just like a natural thing. Like just suck it up. Ooh, that's where it was. It was the suck it up mentality. I freaking hate that mentality. They're like, suck it up. Just suck it up. Just get over it. It's like, no, I really need help. It's just like my back hurting, my back pain, my support system just failing underneath me. I was alone. I lived alone. I wasn't married. I don't have kids. My family's far away. To get leave was just impossible. So I had been like nine months since I saw my family. It was just very a lonely time for me, honestly. I just felt I didn't like myself. I didn't like who I was becoming. It just, it was painful men- mentally. One night, this is where I kind of snapped, is I had, I had been having trouble with my support system, but we all went out to the movies. I remember, like, just not being listened to or something. I don't know exactly quite what happened to make me feel this, but everyone went into the movies and I couldn't. I had a legit panic attack and I couldn't do it, an anxiety attack and I couldn't do anything. And so I went outside to this bridge area. Nobody came out after me. It had been probably 45 minutes, no texts, no calls. I'm like, where are my friends? Like nobody's checking on me. And that's the, that's the point where I was like, I'm so, I'm so done with this. So I actually went, I hiked up to the bridge and I stood there and I was like, I'm going to jump. Like, have I ever had that thought in my life? Absolutely not. That was the first time I've ever thought about that. I'm like, I just want to go into that cold river and just die. And I literally sat on that bridge for an hour and a half. Still, no one came after me. I didn't know who to ask for help. I didn't know what to do. And I remember calling one of my one of my uh, senior master sergeants at that time. She was helping me through all this stuff. And I called her. I'm like, hey... I'm on the top of a bridge. I'm wanting to jump. What do I do? And she's like, I will stay on the phone with you this whole time. And she's like, please. Like, she was just talking to me the whole time. And I remember, oof. <laughs> I remember standing there ready to jump. And I just feel these arm, arms around me. And she pulled me back. And I just started screaming. Because it was just, it's painful. It's painful to, like, hate yourself and not feel loved and supported. And my friends came out. She got my friends to come out. And they started yelling at me. It wasn't support and love like in the movies. Like, oh my god. They were so... They were yelling at me. They're like, why would you do that? This is such dumb shit. And that's when I realized, like, man, I've got to get help. This is... This is not right. So, um... I actually checked myself in to a mental health clinic for about a month and a half. Um, I got approved from the commander and I'm like look something's not right and either I'm gonna die or or you're gonna let me get help and so it's embarrassing to have to check yourself in one of those places 
because there's such a stigma around mental health. Like, oh, she's crazy. She could snap at any time. Oh, you know, this. But it's not. When I went there, it was just normal people. It was just normal people going through just life. And I learned a lot in there. And I came out a lot better, but I was still struggling because I was still in the military. No support system. Missing my family. And I had about a year left. And I'm just like, I just remember going to my commander and begging, can I, can I please get out? Like, please, just please let me out. Please let me out. I want to die. Like, and he's like, no, you got to finish it. You know, we'll get you help you need. But yeah, so that last year was like really, really, really tough. How did you get through that last year? Um, One of the things was I looked into getting a emotional support animal. So my one of my staff sergeants helped me out with that. And I talked to the doctor on base, and he gave me a letter for it. So I went, and I go went and picked out... Yeah, I might need these tissues. <laughs> I went to the rescue, the shelter, and I remember just walking around for two hours and being like, man, whatever dog is supposed to be there is going to be there. And that's where I have my... I met Sophie, my dog, right now that I've had for the last five years, and she's amazing. She just doesn't cuddle or nothing like that, so... But at that time, it's it's okay. I had someone to come home to and things like that, so... My dog helped a lot. That one... There was two specific leaders that were helping me through it. Oh, gosh, I, I'd want to say... Yeah, my support system, my friends were just not... They just didn't understand it. So I didn't have it. I don't know. I actually don't honestly don't know uh, how I made it that last year. So tell me about post-military. Once you post-military, once you separated, what's your life been like, and how have yeah. you kind of worked through things up until now? Yeah. So I got out in May 2016. At that time, my back had increasingly became worse, um, so bad that I actually. Uh, could not walk or take care of myself. I was in a wheelchair for about nine months. I was also using a cane, things like that. Um, my dad was taking care of me at that time. I went, obviously, all those, um, you've had to probably go through all those hoops um, in the VA. There's a lot of hoops you have to go through, paperwork, talking to people. I remember trying to seek help. I was just in so much pain from my back. And they were just, um, at that time, Utah was going through the opioid problem. And so I could not get prescribed opioids. That was really tough because I didn't have actual pain medication. But they put me on like 15 different medications. And I couldn't even tell you what they were, what they did. They legit was just handing them out like candy. Like, oh, here's this for this, this for this, this for this, this for this. It was this horrible. Um, I was at this point where I was so out of it and in pain that my little brother had to, who was still at home at the time, had, my dad had made a schedule and he was in charge of my medication and had to give it to me. And it was literally a list, like two things long, like, okay, this at this time, you know, tramadol at uh, 4.15 p.m., da, da, da. And I just remember like, God, is this going to be the rest of my life? Was that all for your back? That was all for my, well, there was back, there was my sleeping, I have insomnia, um, I had my anxiety medication, but yeah, there was just, it seemed like it was like 15 medications and I'm just like, man, this is going to be my life. And I, I remember going in and I finally got my back figured out and I had three crushed, uh, vertebrae. 
So my my I think it's my S1, my L5, and my S2 or something. I can't remember specifically, but they had been crushed from obviously from all those years of wearing, you know, the the vest and things like that. And nobody listening to me, it got exponentially worse. And so, um, and my nerves had come, or the, you know, that stuff in the middle, they had come out and they'd wrap around my nerves. So my whole right leg was on fire consistently, just, just all the time. So I couldn't walk. I couldn't even, it got to the point where like people were helping me with my baths. Like that's, and I kept telling the VA and they're like, okay, well, we're trying to figure something out. We're trying to figure something out. I remember telling them one time, I'm like, I want to kill myself. And they're like, oh, you can't say that. That's really serious. And I'm like, no, I'm telling you legit, I want to kill myself. This is, If I'm not going to get help, I want to die. And at that time, that was my second suicide attempt. Um, I was in so much pain. I wasn't getting any help from the VA. And I remember taking a belt and tying it I was living in my dad's basement at the time and I tied it around um the top of the the beam there and I was doing it I was killing myself and for some weird reason my dad had walked down at that time and I had already been in it for a couple minutes he was so mad (laughs) he was so mad at me um but yeah, he got me down and he understood. Um, and he understands now more. Um, at that time, he was just really angry at me because he's like, are you seriously going to do that? And I'm like, dad, I'm in so much pain. I just want to die. And I was still dealing with my, my mental health as well. So, um, But I finally got selected for the Veterans Choice Program. And a week later, I got my back surgery. And man, I was a, such a life changer. That changed my life 100%. It was a horrible recovery. <laughs> it took about three months. It was so painful. But I remember... I just remember, man, like, this is my second chance. Like, I've got to do something about this. If my back gets better, like, I've got to find a way, an outlet, something, like, to keep me... So I thought about going back to karate to strengthen my core and things like that. But I actually watch a dance videos why I was, you know, bedridden. And it was about three or four months after my back surgery and I was getting better. I was in the therapy program. I'm like, I asked my physical therapist, I was like, can I try dance? And he's like, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess, but you got to be really careful and things like that. And so I was like, okay. Um, and I walked into, uh, it's millennium up here. Um, it used to be, now it's at Trolley Square, but, um, on ninth and ninth and I walked into uh this guy's class his name was Jesse Sykes and I like obviously I'm really really careful about my body and doing certain movements um I stretch every day I make sure that um I'm taking my vitamins things like that I remember just like wow this is really fun like and then from there it just branched out I found this group called Utah Raw that they were forming and it was a crump group and it actually was one of my ways of dealing with my mental health um it was a way for me to release uh artistically and it kind of reminds me of the military a little bit it's this social network of people and we're all dealing different stuff but we're using dance as an outlet 
So it's just been crazy that that <laughs> I would have never guessed it would have been dance. That was my outlet to to be helping and saving me because I still have I still my mental health is still it's never going. That's the thing that I want to tell people is your mental health is never going to go away. It's a consistent thing that you have to work on. And you have to be verbal about it. That's the thing is like I know there's people that are like keeping things inside and stuff like that. But because I was verbal about my mental health, I think from the military and all that stuff, I think I've gotten a lot more help because people know what I'm going through. And they're like, oh, how you know. So I think it's very important to find anything, something, a hobby, find a structure, find a, your local uh what what is the the VFW like find something where you can have people and talk to people and connect and be social whatever it is it doesn't have to be dance it could be bingo night dungeon and dragons whatever it is just find something to kind of get your mind off it like a new purpose because honestly I had to find a new purpose because after post military I didn't have a purpose anymore what's my purpose I have none I'm broken I'm actually 100% disabled, um, from which is crazy. I feel super lucky for that. But yeah, it's just finding a new purpose. That's that's the most important part. If you or any veteran you know is feeling self-destructive or suicidal, please don't hesitate to use the Veterans Crisis Line by either calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1 or by texting 838 838- or by visiting www.veteranscrisisline.net. This 24-7 confidential service is for all veterans, all service members, the National Guard and Reserve, their family members, and their friends. Join us again for the next episode of We Happy Few. If you have comments about the show, please contact us by email at tips at loudmouthproject.com or on Twitter at loudmouthjason. Check out our website at loudmouthproject.com and navigate to the We Happy Few page. You can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcast, iTunes, and other places where you find interesting shows. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps grow our audience. We would like to thank our producer and editor, Josh Tilton, and our creative director, Amy Donaldson, for adding the spit and polish to our show. I'm Jason Comstock, and until next time, Keep listening, keep learning, and stay engaged. We Happy Few is a production of the Loudmouth Project.